Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. Friends, good morning. I think we can all agree that, that Janelle Neese, the woman who led the children's liturgy of the word, that procession, I think we can all agree she's the real MVP of this Mass. <laughs> that is unbelievable. So if you see Janelle after Mass, you've got to give her like a high five or a, a, a 20 or something. I don't know. <laughs> so I was talking to a friend of mine a few days ago. We were messaging back and forth. We were talking about the election results, the, uh, the tough election results that came in last week from the November 7th election, the failed, uh, or no, the, the constitutional amendment that issue one that went through, and, and we were just lamenting together and just sharing how just disheartening it was. I don't think I'm alone in this. Am I alone in this? I'm not alone in this. It's incredibly disheartening, just shocking that we're here, right? And that's what we were talking about. We were asking that question, how did we get here? Like, as a nation, as a state, I know we're probably all asking that question, how in the world did we get here, where so many people became convinced that an essential component to the good life, especially for women, an essential component of liberty and freedom is ensuring the supposed right of pregnant moms to terminate their babies up through all nine months of pregnancy. Like, how did we get here as a culture with enshrining such bad laws and, and having such corrupt politicians. Like, how did, how did we get here, right? Like, the world of law and politics, it's downstream from culture, as many people have said. It's downstream from culture. But also, as many people have argued, like, laws and politics, they exercise their own sort of, like, reverse flow effect on the culture, influencing the culture. It's like shaping the patterns, shaping the thinking, shaping the, the vision that the culture has of what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what's bad. There's this sort of like recursive flow loop sort of thing that happens, right? Bad culture leads to bad law. Bad law influence and further corrupts the culture, right? So in this sort of chicken and the egg scenario, of culture and law, law to culture, it's, it's clear, right, that, that laws and politics flow from corrupted culture, and corrupted culture is further corrupted by bad laws and politics. But, but you have to ask the question, like, what, pray tell, what is supposed to, what, what has the power to influence culture, not just on a superficial level, but what, what, what's supposed to have the power to influence culture at the depth? Like, what is it that's supposed to cultivate the culture at the depth, giving us either good or bad culture. And in a word, it's, it's cult. Cultus in the Latin, meaning worship or religious worship. This is what I want to kind of unpack for us this morning. There's a, there's a dictum of the medieval world that cult cultivates the culture. I've preached about this before, but it bears repeating that cult or religious worship or what's the prevailing religious imagination of a people, that's the thing that cultivates, that gets into the soil of the culture. Cult cultivates the culture. How we worship, what that looks like, what we do with our hearts, where we take our desires, all of that, that's what shapes the culture in which we live. 
So in other words, good worship, beautiful worship, right worship, it's meant to orient the human person within the cosmos. Like how we worship, beautiful worship, right worship, our worship is meant to orient us in the cosmos. We need to be situated within a larger story. We as human beings, we are narrative animals. We are storytelling animals. We sense our life as part of a story. We need to know, like, is there a story? Or is it, like as Macbeth says, the story of sound and fury told by an idiot? Is it, is it meaningless or is there a story that we are part of? And if there is a story, what is, the st- what is it? What's our place in it? Where do we come from? Where are we going? How do we get there? What's the drama of the story? Where does the evil come from in the story? What part do I play in this story? What is my relationship to God in this story? What's my relationship to other people? Right? Cult, worship, religious worship is meant to frame in and answer all of those questions. And I put it this way even further, that, that good worship, beautiful worship, right worship, it's meant to orient our hearts and our desires. And this I think, friends, as I've been praying this week, reflecting on that conversation with that friend of mine, this is where I hope to try and build a bridge between like, the readings that we just heard and especially the gospel and the, the sort of the cultural moment that we're in right now. It might not seem obvious, um, but there is, there is direct practical implications from the readings that the church is giving us this weekend to what just happened what is happening in our country, in our state, especially, in particular, the gospel, this story, this parable of the, the wise and the foolish virgins, the ones who prepared their hearts and prepared themselves for the bridegroom and those who didn't. Okay, so before I really get into the nitty-gritty of what I want to try and get to, I, let me just lay down a sort of like, like a base coat, right? Like, let me put down some primer to indicate some of the themes that kind of emerge in the readings. You with me? Yeah? Okay. So in the first reading from the Book of Wisdom, we hear this theme, we're exposed to this theme of waiting on wisdom. In the Book of Wisdom, it's Lady Wisdom. Lady Wisdom being the personification of... Now, there, there's no... God is not a woman, but there is a femininity we can say in God, don't write the bishop, don't write the pope, I'm not being a heretic. This goes back to the church fathers, all right? Save yourself a stamp. <laughs> there is, within the Trinity, there is giving and receiving, right? Receptivity is, when receptivity comes into creation, it looks like femininity. So, the, the, the spirit, the spirit of wisdom, lady wisdom, is the one who is waited upon in this first reading. There's this theme of of suffering our creaturely limitations of not being able to just like snap our fingers and give myself what I have to patiently wait on. This person has to wait and watch and keep vigil, waiting at the door, waiting for wisdom to be given, waiting for the Lord to come, waiting for the Spirit to be given. So you see how this is working, right? There's a, there's a, there's a theme of waiting in my creatureliness. And then you go to the psalm that we just sang, Psalm 63. My soul is thirsting for you, O Lord, my God. O God, you are my God, whom I seek, whom I desire. My body pines for you. My soul thirsts for you 
It's the longing of the heart, right? You hear this, thirsting, longing, pining, desiring. It's the heart stretching and looking for fulfillment. To be filled full. And like, where does the psalmist take his heart? Where is it oriented? It says, so I gaze on you. Where? In the sanctuary. In the sanctuary. Sanctus, the holy place. I orient my longing, my thirsting towards the holy place, towards the sanctuary. And what comes of this? My soul is filled as with a banquet. Like super abundant satisfaction. Then the second reading, St. Paul to the Thessalonians, he's talking about, he's unpacking this theme of death, the finality of death. And, and it's the question, is the grave just a hole in the ground where all that we hoped for, all that we longed for, all that we sought to accomplish, where it just gets buried? Is every dream, every hope, every love, does it just get buried in a hole in the ground or is there something more? Like, has Christ, this is what Paul's saying, Christ has opened a door in death. So why we don't grieve like the pagans, he says. Yes, grieve, but do not grieve like the pagans. Meaning that we do not, we are not meant to live in this world like the pagans who don't know that a doorway has been created into death. Those who don't know Christ. Right, you're picking up some of these themes, right? Base coat down. All right. Let me turn to Pope Benedict before I get to the gospel. Pope Benedict, Pope Benedict XVI. He said this. There's, there's, there's some moments where he uses these superlatives that just catch you off guard because he's so measured in his language. When he says things like, the fundamental existential problem of man, you're like, better pay attention, right? The fundamental existential problem we face as human creatures is this. It's the boundless demands of our hearts. It's not poverty. It's not economics. It's not racism. It's not global cha climate change. The, the fundamental problem, the existential problem of the human person is that we have these hearts that have these boundless demands, longing for the infinite, but we cannot grant it. I cannot give it to myself. Our hearts long and they thirst and they pine and they desire for the fullness of life, for the fullness of love, for all that is good. I want everything good. For everything that is broken to be fixed, for everything that is wounded to be healed, for everything that is wrong to be set right. And that thing that we long for, it's not anything in this world. That's what he says is the fundamental problem, that we have a longing for something that doesn't exist in this world. But we live in this world. We live in this world hemmed in by time and space, confined by our own limitations as these creatures. We're bound by death, bound by our mortality. And so humanity rages against the fact that we are but mere creatures. This is why we are all obsessed with control. Every person wants to be God. Because God's the one who's really in control. We rage against our creatureliness. I just, I hate that I get stuck in traffic. I hate that it's a rainy day. I hate that it's snowing again. I hate daylight savings time. <laughs> At the depth of that, 
is a rage against my creatureliness, a desire to be God. And so what we do in this is we grasp at the world. We grasp at the good things in this world in order to try and get some semblance of satisfaction for our hearts. We orient our desires, we orient our hearts towards the world. We orient our energies, our hearts, towards the things that we can accomplish, towards the things that we can control, what we can manipulate. We can't suffer the waiting Waiting upon the gift, waiting upon love, waiting upon fulfillment, waiting upon the banquet. Because we fear that it's never going to come. We can't wait upon God to fix this broken world. So what we do is we say, we'll be God, we know what to do, we'll fix the world. And we build our golden calves over and over and over and over again. Back to Pope Benedict. He says this, Man's aching desire for the infinite, it's like a signature imprinted with fire in his soul and body by the creator himself. The heart's thirst and the body's longing, it cannot be eliminated. Thus, man unknowingly stretches out in search of the infinite. But where? In misguided directions in this world in drugs, in sexuality, lived in a disordered manner, in an all-encompassing technologies, in success at any cost, and even, he says, in deceptive forms of religiosity. Even the good things that God has created as paths that lead to him often run the risk of being absolutized and thus become idols that replace the creator. Friends, this, this is the world in which we live. What he just described, misguided directions, absolutizing the good things of this world. And herein, right here, lies the call for us to learn from these wise virgins who prepared their hearts. These wise virgins who were able to wait and keep vigil, who oriented their gaze towards the coming bridegroom. They oriented themselves towards the coming bridegroom. This is where, very practically speaking, like liturgy, the mass, worship, cult, right, cultus, this is where it comes into focus as the most practical medicine for our culture and our world. You want to solve what happened on, on November 7th, you're doing it, you're, you're here. This is the only answer, this is the only medicine, what we're doing right here. Because the world needs Christians whose hearts are aflame, like the lamps of those wise virgins, to proclaim right, with joyful hope that there's another way to be. There's another way to be. Like to, like to the world that, has, that is losing itself in idolatry and worship of self and worship of pleasure. Right? This world that is maximizing good feelings and good experiences and, and its self-determination. Because, hey, like, if this is all there is, if death is coming, if there's nothing beyond the grave, I better make the most of it. Like, our world has resigned itself to hedonism and individualism and self-expression, and it has committed itself to this dream of building an earthly utopia, building the kingdom of God on earth without the king, 
because the king doesn't exist. You got to build this earthly utopia. Like, because our world has lost hope that anybody is coming to save us, that anybody is coming to satisfy our hearts, our longings, the world has lost hope that anybody is coming to set this right. But he has come. But he has come. Like, he does come. He is coming in this Mass, right here. Right? In a moment, you'll hear, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Like, we are crying out at every single Mass what you heard in this Gospel. Behold the Bridegroom. Behold the Bridegroom. Come out to meet him with your hearts prepared, with your hearts oriented to him. And then our lives are meant to be a living declaration to the world that there's another way to be. Like in the early church, the first Christians, they called themselves very simply the living. They were the living. Everyone else was dead. We come here to receive life, to feast on life, to go forth from here, to be the living. Like the Mass, friends, when it's understood at like a sufficiently deep level, this is the only practical response, like I said, to what happened on November 7th. I want you to think. Think of Psalm 19. Think of Psalm 19. David says, In the heavens, he, the Lord, has set a tent for the sun, and it comes forth like a bridegroom. Every single day, every single sunrise is a declaration of Christ Jesus, the risen bridegroom, right? The sun who is risen, who will never die again. He is the risen sun. And just humor me for a moment. The sun rises in the, the east, in the east, orient in Latin, Orientem, the church for centuries has worshipped facing the east, facing the direction, ad orientem, the direction of the rising sun, the direction of the resurrection, like the direction of the bridegroom. For centuries, what the church has done is orient a disoriented world to the bridegroom. That's what? Catholicism is. That's what the Mass is. And I'm not trying to stoke the fires of liturgy wars and say we need to be ad orientum. That's not what I'm saying. It doesn't really ultimately matter which direction we're facing. That's not my argument. My point is this. Like our worship is meant to orient your whole being, your whole heart, your whole humanity, right? Man's aching desire for the infinite, the heart's thirst, the body's longing, which cannot be eliminated, which you all brought here today, that stuff of your humanity is meant to be oriented to him in this Mass, like in this Eucharist, which might be the last Eucharist you ever receive. You and I don't know. You don't know what today holds, what tomorrow holds. What if this was the last one? What if it was? We are invited to orient every fiber, to open every fiber of our humanity, our fallenness, our glory, the beauty, the ugliness. All of it is meant to be opened up to the rising sun, the bridegroom, 
Because here he comes, right? Here he is. Like we have a message for the world, right? It's like, hey world, hey culture of death, world that is so loved by God, so lost in sin, so hurt, so alienated, so convinced that you have to fix it on your own and solve all the problems on your own. And you're so frantic to think that since this all ends in death, you have to squeeze out of this life every good thing, as much pleasure as possible. Listen to us. Look at us. There's another way to be. There's another way to be. It's called Christianity. It's called Christianity. So friends, let us gaze upon him in the sanctuary, right? As the psalm is telling us, gaze upon him in the sanctuary to see his strength and to see his glory, right? Let us pine for him and let us be filled as with a banquet. Like everything your heart is looking for gets placed upon your tongue at every single mass. Orient all of your longing, all of your desires, all of your junk, all of your sinfulness, orient it to him. Be like the wise ones who opened their lamps and their hearts and they were set aflame, right? Behold the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Come out from all of your hiding places. Come out from all of your fears. Come out from hiding behind the fig leaves. Come out, right? He's here. The bridegroom is coming. Amen.